And speaking of bringing, did everybody bring your Bible? I think, I, I don't know if you've picked it up or not yet, but we preach from the Bible. And since we do that, it's always helpful to have your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, seriously, we would love to give you one and treat it with precious adherence to what the Word of God says. So we'd love to give you a Bible if you don't have one. And we want to encourage you to bring your Bible. If you didn't bring one, um, there's one right in front of you in the back of that pew, and we'd like to have you open that up to Genesis chapter 3. You know, I think I first became aware that there's a battle between the sexes, men and women. I think I first became aware of this in eighth grade. And the reason I came aware of this that um, may be contrary to what you might be thinking right now is that I was goaded by my friends. I was baited into an arm wrestling match with Stacy Haskins, an eighth grade girl. And friends, she was a beast. And I was a twerp. And I was nervous. But what can you do when you're an eighth grade guy and all the guys are cheering you on and making you do this and 30 or so kids are gathered around like this is a prize fight? She not only beat me, she crushed me. And I realized two things. Number one, I've got to get steroids, which I don't recommend normally. And secondly, there's something different about guys and girls in eighth grade. Because most girls could beat most guys I know in arm wrestling in eighth grade. And that's what I first began to realize, wait a minute, I wanted to beat her in arm wrestling more than I ever wanted to beat any guy I ever arm wrestled. Where did that come from, that competition? Well, last week we began to see in Genesis chapter 3, this divine courtroom drama playing out. You remember the arraignment, right? The arraignment was when God was walking through the garden and he spoke out, where are you? That was their call to court. And then it proceeded in this trial to the examination and God asked of Adam and Eve three questions. And then they try to minimize their guilt, they try to shift their blame, and Adam and Eve pronounced the verdict themselves. They entered a guilty plea the very moment that they admitted that they ate from the tree that God had forbidden. And friends, now we come to the sentencing. And what we're going to see in here is that God sentences the serpent, the one who possessed the serpent, Eve, and all women that will ever live, and Adam, and all men who will ever live. He began the sentencing with the serpent. Here's what he said if you got your Bibles open in verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life. Now friends, serpents and snakes, they don't really literally eat dust. But this became a common way to refer to armies who were vanquished and who lived in utter and perpetual and eternal defeat. This is what God is saying to the serpent. Because of your role and the fall of men and women, you're going to live in eternal defeat. You know how long this is going to last for serpents? Do you know that when Jesus Christ comes 
And he sets up his millennial kingdom, 1,000 years of reigning here on earth. Did you know that even in that millennial kingdom, when the other beasts of the field are free from the curse, look what Isaiah 65 25 says, yet will the serpent eat dust. You're talking about a prison that the sentence of God puts snakes in. They will not be released. Then God speaks to the one who possessed the snake, Satan. And he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and and the woman in between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I want you to, to, to do something when we study the Word of God together. And in fact, all week, I want you to try to do this. This coming week, when you read the Word of God and you study the Word of God, don't approach it like it's a history manual. I want you to put yourself into the, the, the story. And here, let's put, ladies, I want you to put yourself in Eve's shoes. Men, I want us to put ourselves in Adam's shoes. And I want you to see what would it be like if we were the ones there on that day that this sentencing came. And what would happen to us? Because listen, we remember, if we were Adam and Eve, we remember that God said that the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. And we've just admitted our guilt. And right on the heels of that, God begins this sentencing. And unavoidably, friends, come on, you know this, unavoidably, what had to be going through Adam and Eve's minds is this, is this the moment that I die? And all of a sudden, they hear God say to the serpent that Eve It's going to have offspring. The people will come from Eve and all of a sudden there's the first glimmer of hope. Haven't you ever been in trouble? Can you remember back to school? Some of you, that's a long ways back. But can you remember back to school? Did you ever get a detention? You know, I got in trouble more from the principal of the school when I was a student teacher than when I was a student. I'm not kidding. I was called to the principal's office twice as a student teacher. I almost quit. And he was furious at me both times. Why? Because the chairman of the board's daughter, stinking, spoiled, I'm sorry, did I say that? (laughs) Lovely young eighth grade girl didn't get an A on a test. I gave her a B. So she fabricated all sorts of lies to her mom and dad And the next day, I'm called for the second time into the principal's office. And you know what? When you're in trouble, and all of a sudden, your ears are listening for it, and all of a sudden, you you hear one little bit of mercy or grace begins to create hope. And this is what's in Adam and Eve. All of a sudden, they're hearing God speak, and and God says that he himself will put enmity You know what enmity is, right? Hostility, conflict, hatred. God's going to put this conflict, this hostility, this hatred between Eve's offspring and Satan's offspring. Now, Satan doesn't have babies. And so what does this mean? Well, Eve's offspring 
are the church or are Israel later to be the church and even more importantly from Eve will come the Messiah the deliverer Jesus Christ Satan, Satan's offspring, friends, simple, is, are, are all the people that will reject God. And even Jesus himself corroborated this. He said, the world will hate you because the world hated me and you are my disciples. There will be enmity even now, Christian brother and sister, between us and the world, and it's only a reflection of what God himself put into the garden's sentence. Since the early 2nd century, did you know that the church, when they read and they studied and they preached and they interpreted verse, 16, or verse 15, they saw in this what they called in Latin the Proto-Evangelium. Can you say that? <laughs> Let's all say it. Proto-Evangelium. You're speaking Latin. Proto means first. Evangelium is the gospel. This is the first mention of the gospel in all of scripture because the pronoun he and between your offspring and her offspring here it is here's the proto-evangelium he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel he christ shall bruise your satan's head and when is this going to take place? This is a prophecy of the crucifixion. This is a prophecy of the ministry of Jesus Christ that will defeat Satan from the cross. And yes, Satan is still powerful. Yes, he's still dangerous, but he is lost and the victory is Christ. And in the sentencing of punishment, right here in verse 15, through this proto-evangelium, God all of a sudden begins, right in the very sentencing, begins to inspire hope and humanity. He will set creation free from sin. This was the purpose of his work on the cross. He was to set all creation free from the curse of sin, especially those especially humanity and only those who will turn to him in faith. Now, friends, listen, have you ever thought, I mean, I don't know if you think like I do. These thoughts just go through my mind when I'm, when I'm um, preparing for these sermons. What was Satan's goal? Why did Satan want to lead Adam and Eve into sin? Do you know why he did? Can I offer you two reasons, two goals Two plans that Satan had when he possessed that serpent and came into the garden. You know, the scriptures I told you before, it's not really, really clear as to who Satan was, but it gives us enough information to suggest and to tell us that Satan was a morning star. Did you know that the Bible calls Satan the morning star? By the way, that's the title for Christ as well. The word Satan has in it the brilliant one. It means the brilliant one. And what we think is true from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, is that Satan was the highest created being there was. The highest angel there was. And in his capacity, in his role, in his function, Satan's job was to direct worship. That doesn't mean that the angels put on robes and Satan stood up there with a little stick and did four, four times. That's not what it means to direct worship. What it means is literally direct worship. It means that Satan's job was to get all the worship of all the created beings and direct it only to Christ, only to God. 
and make sure that it stopped nowhere until it got to God. But in doing this, Satan's heart was filled with pride. And pride always wants to elevate yourself. And he wanted to sit on the throne and replace God as the chief being in the universe. And he tried to direct all of the worship of all the angels to himself. His purpose in the garden, friends, was the exact same thing with Adam and Eve. Here's what Satan was doing. First, he wanted to seduce Adam and Eve away from God. But that's not all he wanted to do. And if that was the only thing that he was able to do, that wouldn't have completed his plans. He not only wanted to seduce them away from God, he wanted to create their highest allegiance to him. He wanted to sit on the throne. He wanted to possess all of creation. He wanted all the beings to worship him, including Adam and Eve. And he succeeded in the first. He did seduce them away from God, but before he could complete his plans, all of a sudden God steps in and puts enmity between mankind and Satan's offspring. Friends, this is grace. This is a gift from God. He put in our hearts, Christian brothers and sisters, to the degree that he set us free from sin. Well, what do you mean, Pastor Tim? I thought he died for sin, that we are free. Well, there are free Christians living in slavery. Because you choose to put around you those shackles that Christ took off. And to the degree that you live free from sin... And have a hatred toward evil. You will have an enmity between you and the world and between you and Satan. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now somebody has got to be thinking this morning, I thought this was a marriage series. So what does this have to do with marriage? Well, can I tell you what it has to do with marriage? That same grace that we see in verse 15 works in our marriages. Now listen, to move us to hate it when Satan gets victory. I mean, come on, men. Don't you hate it when you have a conflict with your wives and you treat her terribly? And afterwards you go, why did I do that to the one that I love? Ladies, don't you hate it when you don't treat your husbands with respect, when you bring up their past failures? Why would I do that to my covenantal spouse? If you despise it when Satan gets the victory in your marriage, friends, it's only because grace of God has been poured into your hearts through Christ and he's put in enmity between you and Satan. So that you don't want Satan to get victory. You don't want your marriage to reflect the heart of Satan. Eve was created with a purpose to be Adam's helper. Meaning that she was created to gladly submit to his gracious, loving leadership and provide a counterpart to what he lacked. That's what that word means. And Adam was created to lovingly lead 
his wife with grace and courage and shift his priority, even though he didn't have parents. This is to all men at all times. Shift our priority away from our parents and place them chiefly on our wives. And both Adam and Eve, both of them were created in God's image. Together they were meant to rule creation. Both were equally blessed by God with His favor and His love. Yet their fall, you got to listen, yet their fall corrupted the very roles that God had created them for. Eve was deceived and ate the fruit. And then she led her husband into sin. And Adam, friends, who was standing right there with her the entire time forfeited his godly strong leadership of his wife he didn't rescue her with grace from the serpent and instead followed her leadership into full rebellion and full defiance and now we're going to see that the sentence that god gives to the men and to the women eve first and then Adam, uniquely and perfectly fits the nature of their sin. And the only solution, and if you don't get this, you're going to miss the best part of this entire sermon. The only solution to this sentence, which prisons all men and all women into it, the only way out, the only key to the door is through Jesus Christ. So what do we learn when we turn to the sentence of Eve and the sentence of all women at all times? Here's what he says in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. Friends, who's the author of this? Who's the I? It's God. God is the one that hands down this sentence. I will surely multiply your pain. And in just simple first blush grammar, it's God who continues the rest of verse 16. He puts this in the hearts of men and women. He creates this difficulty to force us to move to Christ. And it affects Eve profoundly in two ways. First of all, as a mother. Look what he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So friends, is this only referring to the pain of giving birth to children? Undoubtedly, it does refer to that pain. It does refer to the dangers of childbirth, which women alone can experience. But more than that, more than that, it refers to the totality of motherhood. Did you know that in the Hebrew language, the word pain hardly ever, rarely ever was used for physical pain? It's almost entirely used for the word sorrow. And it means sorrow that comes from its root word, toiling. It means hard toil that produces sorrow. That's what God means when he says, I will surely multiply your sorrow from your hard toil and childbearing. 
Maybe that gives an explanation to the physical part why we call childbirth labor pains. It's hard work to give birth. And where having a family should have been a joy as a mother, sin is going to make it a heartbreaking sorrow. Now moms, you know this. The difficulty of tending sick children, staying up late at night waiting for your teens to get home after a date, watching your children as they get older making foolish, painful decisions, worrying for their safety. Moms, you know the sorrow of letting go of your children when they go to college. Because the sense of a mother's success is inextricably woven to the behavior and the outcome of their children. And all of these are the pains of childbearing and their experience, yes, by both parents, but none so deeply as by mothers. Now, friend, ladies, listen to me. This sentence that God gives to Eve and to you is not meant to bring you to ruin. It's meant to bring you to repentance and to dependence on Christ so that you will rely on Him for your children's sake. I mean, haven't you ever gone to 1 Timothy 2, and ladies especially listen, haven't you ever read 1 Timothy 2 and, and wondered, what is Paul talking about? Because this little passage that we're going to read produces two results in women. One, irritation, and then puzzlement. Here's what it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. All of a sudden, bristling is happening all over. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, now you're angry. Now I'm going to make you confused, Paul says. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What on earth does that mean? When Paul writes that they will, that women will be saved, friends, listen, at least know this. He's not talking about regeneration. He's not talking about being born again into Christ because that cannot happen apart from faith in Christ. Childbearing has saved no woman ever. So he can't be talking about salvation. And what Paul does mean is this, that women will be saved or women will find their satisfaction and fulfillment through bearing children. But listen, if they, look at the text, if they, and who is they? They is not the women, they is not the mothers, they are the children. If your children continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, then moms, you will... Be saved. You will find fulfillment. You will be satisfied. Mothers, do you have children who aren't walking with the Lord? Then you know that this is a piercing sorrow. It's a pain. And you're helpless to change it, but by praying all the more for their deliverance. This is why Proverbs says in verse 1 of chapter 10, a wise son makes a glad father. Why? Because dads can brag about their kids. But look what it does to moms. But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. See, God has made it part of your sentence, ladies, 
that when you become mothers, your hearts will be wrapped up with the life of your children and in increased measure, God will multiply it. And if your children succeed, you will feel successful. If your children fail, you will feel a failure. And it's why so often moms are so filled with such deep, deep faith because they must go to the throne for their children. But it's not just as a mother. This sentence includes one other aspect of Eve's life as a wife. And we need to remember here that this is the origin of the battle of the sexes. This is where it all began, friends, and why it continues to today. And I want you to remember that God has bound all women, all men into this sentence that he gives. Why? For a redemptive reason to bring us to cling to dependence in Christ. And here's what he says to Eve. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Do you know that in recent years, this has been one of the most hotly, controversially debated topic in Scripture? This verse alone has received volumes and volumes and and debates on the circuit just on its interpretation. And traditionally, there's been four main interpretations of this. And let me give them to you quickly. First, many people think, that this means that a woman's desire for intimacy with her husband is going to be so strong, God will make it so strong in her heart that she will be willing to go through the pains of childbirth. That's one interpretation. A second one is that a woman has such an immense psychological dependence on man that she is willing to submit to an often harsh and insensitive husband. There's a third interpretation that's common, meaning that her desire, whatever it may be, will not be her own. She'll be unable to do what she wants because her husband, everything in marriage will be from her husband's desire because he will rule over her like a tyrant. Now just take those three before I present you the fourth. And in each of those, What is brought about in the hearts of women is a willing submission to her husband. But would you think for just a second, ladies, you can answer this. When sin is having a hold in your life, do you ever really want to willingly submit to your husband? Sin never produced a willing submission to right authority, ever. It can't do this. Sin produces an elevation of pride that demands what I want. So the first three honestly can't be the explanation for this because it's absolutely contradictory to what sin does in the hearts of humans. So let me present to you a fourth. And in order to understand it, you kind of have to flip your page of your Bible over to chapter 4. And in verse 7, we see God now speaking to Cain, one of the two sons of Adam and Eve. And I want you to know that in chapter 4, verse 7, we find the exact same Hebrew construction 
that is in chapter 3, verse 16, except for the necessary pronoun changes. What I mean is, in chapter 3, God's speaking to a woman. In chapter 4, God's speaking to a man. And apart from the pronoun changes, there is no difference. And so we can learn what he means in verse 16 by seeing what he meant in verse 7 of chapter 4. And here it means this. Here's what he says. Sin, Cain, is crouching at the door. And here it is, word for word. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And if it could be paraphrased this way, God's saying to Cain, sin has a desire, Cain. It wants to control you, but you must not allow sin to have its way with you. You must conquer it. Because the word desire doesn't mean loving affection. It doesn't mean intimate desires. Ladies, listen. Men, listen. The word desire means a desire to control and rule. And God says to Eve in verse 16, because you led your husband into sin, because you did not stay within the role that I intended for you, then to the degree that sin reigns in your heart, friends, listen to that, to the degree that sin reigns in your heart, you will desire to conquer your husband. This is what God is saying to her. It's a sentence for all women at all times to varying degrees because every woman has a degree of sin reigning in their hearts and every man does as well. Men, I'm getting to you in a minute. Don't sharpen your elbows. It's coming to us. And when sin has the upper hand in women's hearts, they will desire to overpower or subdue or exploit the man in their lives. Now, time out for a second. Time for a little commercial break. Because I heard in between services that some of the ladies going down into the Sunday school class were alternating between weeping over what I explained about being a mother and then the desire acutely in their hearts to assassinate the senior pastor. Because of what I'm saying right now. So can I just remind you that if you try to kill me, you're only proving that I'm right. Sin has fractured. It has corrupted even further than this. And men, listen, you better buck up and man up because now it's speaking to us. And he shall rule over you. You know what that word rule means? It's a strong term. Usually it's used for monarchical governments. And it's rarely ever used of authority within a family. It's a word that means ungodly domination. Here's what God's saying. Eve and every woman and every generation, to the degree that sin has its hold in you, you will want to conquer, you will want to subdue, you will want to lead your husbands. And to the degree that sin reigns in your husband's heart, they will respond with harsh, ungodly domination. This is the battle of the sexes. That sin created, that God imprisoned us in, that only Christ could set us free from. Maleness, what it means to be a male femaleness, 
As God has created it, friends, Adam and Eve, the moment they bit into that fruit, corrupted and depraved what it was like. And now corrupted maleness, listen men, corrupted maleness is a self-exalting effort to subdue and control and exploit women for their own private desires. You know what that looks like? And men, unfortunately, some of you are going to know what I'm telling you. That when you let sin reign in your heart in the area of your lust, you begin to see women as objects to be used for your pleasure. And corrupted femaleness, ladies, is the self-exalting effort to subdue and to control and to exploit men for your own private desires. And men do this how? Through brute strength and intimidation and anger. They treat women as objects. But women, though they may not have the strength that men do, they can outrun any man with their words. And if their ability to run circles around their husbands with their words fails, they know the weakness of every man's lust. Now listen, if you don't believe me, that's fine. Just open up your newspaper today. And just take a notice of statistically how many times is it a man that's behind abuse and murder and rape. And if you don't believe what I'm saying about ladies, then just simply watch a commercial during football. And you'll find that a woman's body can sell to a man anything because she knows the universal weakness of men and how to control him with it. And all the while that all of this rages and reigns in the hearts of men and women, there's only one single antidote, and it's Christ. There's only one who can loosen the hold of sin in our lives, and he will be the offspring alluded to in verse 15. It's only Christ who can redeem a marriage from this universal bent toward ungodly male domination of his wife and the female's effort to control her husband. And it's precisely, friends, listen, this is where we're going in the return of the king. When we get to that portion of this series, we're going to see how Jesus Christ can redeem our marriages by setting us free from what's the sentence that's reigning in our hearts. And Christ can redeem our marriages. He can make them powerful tools. Listen, he can make your marriage a reflective beacon for his glory. Did you know that your marriage, as Christ is redeeming it, as Christ is setting it free, to love one another, to lead one another graciously and lovingly, to submit to one another willingly, to be a helper, to be a leader. Do you know that when your marriage lives like this, you can literally bring people into the kingdom? Because when they see you, they will see a picture of Jesus Christ's love for the church. And when they see wives loving their husbands and showing them respect, they'll see the church lifting up and adoring their Savior. But your marriage could do the opposite. And my marriage could do the opposite. And when I harshly dominate my wife, when my wife vies for control of our marriage to lead me, it will send a beacon of unglory and disgrace to the world and it will move them from the kingdom.
the power of marriage. And it's why I've been saying almost every sermon in this series that we have got to have marriages that are strong in this church if our church is going to be powerfully used in the kingdom of God. Do you agree? Well, how are you doing then with your homework? I'm hearing really mixed reviews. First of all, I heard last night that a couple did the marriage quiz from last week and had about three hours of conflict before they were able to work through it. But they got through it. And then I'm hearing the husbands can't do these assignments because A, they don't think like this, and B, they get angry, which tells you that you're getting close to some stuff they don't want to see. And then I'm hearing that people aren't even trying to do these assignments, and I can guarantee you probably that when we're done with this series, your marriage is going to look the same as it did when you started. Can I just remind you that nobody, nobody in this congregation has had to face their own difficulties in marriage as much as I have. I'm the one in this all week and getting nailed by God for my deficiencies. And every time God reminds me of that, I keep hearing grace that says, walk with me, Tim, and move to your wife. And lead her and love her the way that I've taught you. Friends, men, take these assignments, take these applications, apply them. Let's make our marriages beautiful. And let's walk with the Lord and be a powerful church for the kingdom. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word. This is hard stuff. I would just ask that you would help us to bear up under it with the solid knowledge that you spoke grace before you spoke your sentence. You undergirded your sentence to men and women through the grace of verse 15. And Lord, I pray that we would move towards one another. I pray that we would love one another. I pray that our spouses would become the most important persons in our lives that we would love our wives the way Christ loved the church and that wives would love their husbands the way the church should adore Christ. Well, we need your help with that. Encourage us, Father, and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.